0: prepared to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and american patriot here's civil liberties enthusiast second amendment defender and indefinitely suspended fbi
1: agent kyle Serafin. good evening my friends it is uh seven o'clock eastern standard time five mountain where i am it is wednesday november 16th and i am kyle Serafin. thanks so much for joining me with some of my thoughts um I brought a special guest on today that we are going to uh, do kind of an interview but more of just a free form discussion. Um we're calling this in- this episode After the Arrest. I think a lot of people have minimal visibility about what goes on in the FBI and that's part of the reason why I've been kind of involved in trying to explain what happens and how it works and some of the things that you may not see terminology kind of the inside baseball that uh that your tax dollars are paying for. And uh what I've got is a special guest who worked out of the District of New Mexico for a number of years. I guess he'll be able to tell us exactly how many, but enough to retire. It sounds like. So uh, this is Reeve Swainston, who is a former AUSA and Assistant United States Attorney, and that is a federal prosecutor. That's somebody that takes the cases from the FBI, uh, sometimes recommends a case to the FBI, and uh, and brings that into, you know, both the uh, the, the prosecutorial end of things. So they're the ones that handle the plea deals. And so for all of you folks that have an interest, in what happens after the FBI shows up at your door after a search warrant happens and where they do, you know, how the legal process works, that's what we're going to talk about. And we'll probably talk about what's broken and if we have any ideas on how to fix it, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure that'll be plenty. So uh, Reeve, welcome to the show and welcome to to uh, hanging out with me and producer Phil.
0: Uh, thank you so much. You can t- already tell that I'm a, I'm a zoom virgin. So uh, I forgot to put on my silence, and I just did that while you were talking. Um, Yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah, good to be here. Um, I kind of want to be where you are. That fire looks nice. I I thought that our millions of viewers would really enjoy it. So why not? I have it. It's beautiful. It feels nice and warm right behind me, and I've got uh, a nice view of the sunset here in New Mexico. And uh, my uh, amazing 10-month-old German Shepherd puppy wandering around doing our thing. Uh, yeah, it I think we're going to see some of for... It couldn't be any better. I just uh, I just wish it was in a state where um, uh, citizens felt safer. Uh,
1: for sure. Them. And I've, I've had some folks, uh, you know, we want to talk <clears throat> about the crime crisis that's happening uh, in many major cities in Albuquerque where you're at or outside of is, is no um, – is no stranger to that sort of thing. I think Albuquerque's had some violence for a long time, but it used to be more compartmentalized and um so let's let's just kind of talk about first of all, uh you were an enlisted marine at the age of 17, which we were just talking about a moment ago. Um you went into go be what? a machine gunner? Does that sound right?
0: Yes, I was a machine gunner. Um MOS is uh 0331. And uh I uh, got pretty lucky for the first two years, even though I was a machine gunner. uh, I got sent to Europe for a couple of years. And uh, I don't want to bore you with a long historical background. Um, uh, But, you know, it did help make me who I am. I I got very lucky when I was in Europe to have met um, or become part of a detail. Uh, Back then, um, the commander of uh, Air Force Southern Europe, was a general who took an interest in me and um, uh, helped guide me towards higher education, which was not something that was ever even discussed in my family when I was growing up. And um, to this day, uh, I'm still in touch with him. And and he became probably the single most important uh, mentor in my life. And I've been lucky enough to have a couple of really good men who who helped helped me evolve as a, as a, both as a, a man and, and, um, and then later on as a professional in federal law enforcement. Sure. So, yep. I, and then after that, after I was assigned to him and, uh, not just him, but the security of, uh, installations, property, people, you name it in Southern Europe, it was called Allied Forces Southern Europe. It still exists. I think it's in a different part of the sure. country now though. Yep. Um, I went back to the fleet where I was. An actual machine gunner did that for a couple of years, but during that entire time, I took a lot of college classes and managed once I was um, discharged from the Marines to transfer my credits into, into the University of New Mexico, um, where uh, I just hit the ground running. Uh, I, uh, you know, it took me a few years, but I ended up becoming what I call a GI Bill lawyer. And uh, was lucky enough to, um, after a few years in uh, as a state prosecutor in Philadelphia, to get um, connected with uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Philadelphia as a special assistant, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with. And then mm-hmm. as a USA.
1: When did you? Where did you go to law school?
0: Uh, University of New Mexico. I just uh, I went, finished my undergrad at UNM and then just walked across the street to uh, University of New Mexico School of Law.
1: So how did you get to Philly then?
0: Uh, My wife's from Philly. I lived there for a little bit as a child. Um, I uh, really, uh, you know, I think my childhood could be described this way, Uh, raised by a single mother, a foreigner with a seventh grade education who really was more of a roommate than a parent. Mm -hmm. she did her best um i did everything i could to support my brother and her and myself worked very hard as a child Uh, i was a a child laborer if you will working washing (laughs) pots and pans uh at a local restaurant or, or mowing lawns for a landscaping company um whatever it took and then i joined the marines in part because uh my recruiter said i could send half my paycheck home and my brother would get a winter jacket and uh, food in the fridge. That's, that yeah, is that is the a... nuts and bolts of it. My mom essentially said, raise yourselves, uh, go be feral children. And um, thankfully, it didn't go in the direction it could have gone like it does with so many kids who were raised that way.
1: No, so many, I mean, that's a lot of the people that we see in, in uh, the law enforcement realm are people that started off feral, maybe with not some bad intentions and then they end up on, uh, on the wrong side. And it doesn't take too many steps before you, you kind of run down that, that path permanently, I think, or at least semi-permanently. Um, Very so, easy. so you, you ended up, those steps. Did you end up as a, uh, as a special prosecutor. And then did you get hired on as a, a USA out there or did you come back to New Mexico for that?
0: Um, I did, but I transferred to New Mexico. i managed to, my mom had a stroke, long story. My mom had a stroke and I managed to um, get uh, the job here in New Mexico rather than in Philadelphia. Okay. Um, And I'm very grateful for that. Um, So I managed to come back here, you know, deal with some family issues and had a great career here. Um, It was a total of 22 years in federal service. uh, I think... my total time in new mexico is 15 16 years something like that
1: okay all right so what year uh, just kind of just for perspective did you start as an AUSA? you say you got 22 years of that um yeah give me give yeah. me that so people can kind of see because because the the world has changed dramatically and some of my friends have tried to pick a date when that happened i'm curious what you think that when that started changing over but um you know when did you start specifically
0: uh so for for me it would be right around 2000
1: okay so pre 911 mm-hmm. though Mhm, and so you got to see um, a little bit
0: of that yep a little bit of that and then i was as a special assistant i was a prosecutor in um in <laughs> in the Monster. city of philadelphia and um also uh surrounding county the nearby okay. county sure so enough. i mean that's the general perspective of it um and then managed to get back here permanently and I had some health issues so i had to take uh you know my vested in in and I got a, a combination of my vested slash disability retirement. Thankfully, I was able to do it, put it all together for a full retirement. I love it. Puppy's going um, full blown puppy right now. I may have to when you go to our other uh, friend, I might have to um, put her into a crate or something.
1: Let me know if enough. our audience no.
0: complains or anything.
1: I don't know if there's any complaints. We're just, we're just running by the seat of our pants here. So a little bit of puppy time doesn't upset anybody. I got to do a long discussion actually today on, um, on Truth Social. Um, somebody was saying something about something I wrote. I basically said if somebody came to my door and tried to force, um, a vaccine shot on my children, that the, they would find themselves being recycled by the coyotes. I, I don't know where that, uh, concept came from, but that was my general idea. I'm a pretty aggressive, um, protector. I you think. can do I it right here.
0: You can do it right yeah, here the, at 4 a.m. Coyotes are uh, plentiful.
1: That's right. And and so somebody said something about coyotes, Wish they had them. And I said, yeah, you know, sometimes when you have them, you wish you didn't. And I posted a video of a thermal camera that I had that I shot a coyote on my buddy's ranch because they were running down after his calves and his cows. And, um, you know, it, it hit the wrong chord with certain people, uh, which is kind of funny. And there's a big, I, I think it's one of the big divides in this country is the way that people live in urban areas and they live in rural areas. And if you don't have a lot of experience with that, and you don't know that coyotes are a real problem for ranchers and for for beef cattle and for people who have chickens and goats and sheep and all that. Um maybe you don't have the same perspective on maybe dropping them down. Like I don't I don't feel great about shooting dogs, but they're not the same as your puppy right there. I mean they're just an animal altogether. So we had this just prolonged long protracted discussion about shooting coyotes and how you do it and what what calibers and whether it's wrong and whether people were mad about it. It was really funny. It was not what I thought my day was going to go into, but it was a long discussion about them and that's a big thing in New Mexico, obviously. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time doing that with my buddy, and yeah, I'm sure you guys. Well, we can talk it,
0: about uh, coyotes in New Mexico, but they will be the human kind.
1: That's right. Yeah, and and I know you had some border experience yeah, doing yeah. that, and I, you sent me a good article about cartel stuff. So, you know, maybe you could tell me what your most proud case was, and we can certainly jump into that if that was it, or we we can get into it in a second too. But you know, what was the your most proud prosecution, or maybe your most proud moment working in federal service, if you if you can think of it.
0: You know, I had I had quite a few. Um, I, I had uh, when I look back at my career, uh, I feel very fortunate. I did. I don't even know how many. I many, many, many wiretap, long-term, complex litigation, wiretap invest investigations that I supervised with uh, FBI, DEA. Later on in my career, with um, Homeland Security agents. Uh, early in my career. Um, I did a ton of the the, um, essentially snatch and grab, if you will, quick hit uh, cases involving repeat violent offenders, which uh, never goes out of style. It's a need that every community has. Unfortunately, enforcement of that continues to decline, especially here in New Mexico. I'm hearing all sorts of horror stories of um, offenders who uh, are being released um, uh what i would consider more modern sensitive and very inappropriate um uh, for very inappropriate reasons that uh really are terribly inconsistent with the advancement both the advancement of justice and the caretaking responsibility that we in law enforcement have for the community
1: and i hear that from
0: my my former colleagues but in terms of the case Well, tell me, tell me, too,
1: when you say repeat violent offenders, what what kind of violence are we looking at? Just so people have an idea. I mean, everybody uses the word, but not everybody has the same view that you're going to have.
0: Well, I mean, uh, it can be anything from somebody putting a gun in your face and telling you what's yours is now mine. Mm -hmm. And that person uh, being arrested for that offense um, and at the state level getting out that day or the next day and doing it again and again and again and again uh, that is when those people become what i think we in our profession classify as repeat violent offenders and it can be sure. anything from uh i mean i swear it can be an attempted murder charge that uh, they're released on and but unfortunately what i'm also hearing at the federal level at my uh, alma mater i guess at our alma mater at doj is um, a reduction in the number and quality and complexity of cases um, that are accepted by US attorney's offices all mm-hmm. around the country not not I'm not zeroing in on New Mexico um, but when I say there's a more modern sensitive approach to law enforcement and targeting offenders um, I mean it and what I mean is the The reality is that cases that I would have taken in my career when an agent like you brought me a case and said, I got a guy that just stuck a gun in somebody's face that, you know, this such and such store, corner store took uh, 25 bucks worth of um, uh, coins uh, in that um, what we call Hobbs Act robbery. Right. uh, It would be a no, no brainer complaint. You know, let's whip out a complaint, take it to the magistrate. And um, we'll knock out a case. Um, another example might be, let's not forget, the uh, the drug trafficking crisis that uh, we've been prosecuting forever. And people can have whatever opinions they want on that. But the reality is really cl- crystal clear. The drug trafficking in New Mexico and other border states is so consequential, it results in loss of life. Mm hmm. Um, yep. there can be no ambiguity whatsoever about that uh, and it doesn't need to be the fentanyl discussion either. It can be any variety of, of, um, of hard drugs, mostly, obviously that result in the loss of life. I've been to a number of funerals in New Mexico over the years. The scenario is always the same. The mother talks about her child, um, you know, getting, uh, uh, becoming interested in um, alcohol becoming interested in weed becoming interested in harder drugs and then eventually they die of a black tar heroin overdose yeah um, and so you know uh, it's a community level approach it's a it's a um, law enforcement approach but all of that has to work together and none of it works if <laughs> one part of it is ignored
1: so my um my my instinct on that has always been down. sort of uh, anybody who's willing to break federal laws, whether it be trafficking a, a substance that we don't care about. So, for example, I'm not, I'm not emotionally connected to marijuana. You know, my, I have brothers that use it and it's been state legalized in so many places, including New Mexico and now in Arizona as well. And, you know, I don't I don't really feel one way or another about it. If it's against the law, it should be against the law. And if it's not, it's not. But people who are willing to break certain laws I find that they're willing to do a lot more things once they've kind of crossed that boundary. Is that more or less your experience as well, or do you have a well, different of course, take on
0: course, and, and the other perspective on that is if a marijuana case is catches the attention of the feds, so to speak, it's probably right. something huge. And I mean, one of the, the cases that I handled, um, that I'm actually quite proud of, I handled with DEA, it was a simple interdiction case, turned into a very, not a wiretap case, but a very long-term grand jury investigation where... We discovered that uh, OGs, Bloods out of Los Angeles, were Mm -hmm. um, building and developing and managing and running a huge trucking company. Um, And all they did in New Mexico, uh, in a trucking company designed to transport uh, huge amounts, thousands and thousands of pounds of marijuana, cocaine, and then uh, bulk cash came back uh, to Phoenix and Los Angeles. But uh, that case was interesting because all it was was an interdiction case where um, a state police uh, officer found a a pretty uh, significant load of marijuana. I forget the exact amount, maybe five, 10,000 pounds, something like
1: that. Yeah. I mean, people don't don't realize that when we talk about marijuana in a yeah. federal level, you know, you've had AUSA's. what the famous case that one of my buddies went through. Where the guy goes, you know, we found a lot of weed. And he goes, well, how much? And he goes, I don't know, a lot. And he goes, would it fill up my office? <laughs> like, that's yeah, the kind of weed yeah. we're talking about. Would it fill up the office we're talking in right now? Kind of weed. Right. Right.
0: But that case was that, that, exactly that. And people who are willing to do that, knowing that they're facing at that time, 10 to, to 10 years to life in prison are a special sure. kind of case they're right. they are career offenders these are people engaged in the kind of drug trafficking that is um a business it's a job and so you know that case went from one interdiction to eventually indicting 13 or 14 people all part of the gang out of l.a and um it was a very successful case um you know managed to infiltrate and dismantle that entire organization and learned later on that the brothers who were running that business were both um, involved in in homicides and and, uh, other violent activities and then one of the brothers when he got out of prison was killed he was murdered within weeks of getting out of jail so is that part of the community that is engaged in that kind of activity uh, that I perceive to be a no-holds-barred type of activity um, and uh, a very worthy target for federal interest.
1: Yeah, I think. And we've a lot lost of times, I think. Yeah, so I've had I've had discussions with. We're
0: not investigating those cases anymore.
1: Sure, the it transactional business—that's the—that's the bread we're and not. butter of, of these kind of things. Yep. Yeah. Every well, case we,
0: starts at at a nucleus somewhere.
1: And and anybody that's willing to do that, I mean, they're they're predatory, right? I mean, they're taking advantage of, of softness or weakness in the system. Everybody is available, you know. If you're not going to play by the rules that everybody else agreed to sign up and do, which is the American federal system that we have, if you're not going to obey the law, then you're going to go do whatever makes sense to you, and you're a danger to everybody else that is playing by the rules. And that, that, my my yeah, perspective on
0: that. marijuana, I mean, we should we really shouldn't waste some time talking about it. Too yeah, much, no, I agree. My <laughs> perspective is very simple. Um, if Congress Decides to take it off the schedule or to decriminalize it, then so be it. Yes. But Congress has never decided to do that. No, they the have agent's, not. agent's job and the prosecutor's job is to enforce the laws on the books. It's on the books still. It should yep. be enforced. That it's really so is awkward. My perspective.
1: There, there's nothing more awkward than leaving. I've left weed on search warrants. I've served search warrants when yeah. we were going for PCP and for paraphernalia and for manufacturing in, in DC, and people would be shocked. It's like we took the guns because he was a felon, and we and we took the, uh, the the paraphernalia and the manufacturing equipment, and we took you know residue, and we left you know like a bag of weed on 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 the uh, countertop, and I just went, "Are we going to take this?" And they go, "No." And you go, "Why?" That was my first day. My first day, we left weed on a search warrant, and I and I've I've never collected it since then. It's never been enough. Uh, to, to meet you know, any federal uh, minimums and, and you just think that seems bizarre. But I agree with you. Congress either needs to step up and do the job or we need to enforce it. But this sort of like prosecutorial discretion that it's not important enough for it to worry about, it seems wrong.
0: Prosecutorial discretion exists, but it shouldn't be to completely ignore laws. And, right, and that exactly. is the, the same the, the same problem that we have on the border. But before we do that, you, I do want to talk about one case that I had I sent you the article of it. It was written about yep. by Judy Miller, formerly from the New York Times. Um, the article was uh, titled The Mexicanization of American Law Enforcement. And and I was very proud of that case because um, it involved a uh, New Mexico state police officer and a local sheriff up in the Four Corners area of New Mexico. Um, and I, I could literally talk forever about that case, but those uh, officers were, or had infiltrated the region task force up there. I think it was region two task force. Um, I forget the exact region. Um, As you know, in New Mexico, there's multiple region uh, task force where local law enforcement, state law enforcement, tribal law enforcement are brought in to work with federal agents. um, And Mm -hmm. uh, they're in doing so essentially become the same as federal agents and able to, bring cases to the U.S. Attorney's Office, um, uh, manage wiretaps, uh, things like that. And uh, these officers, um, when they work for the, uh, the task force were engaged in some truly insidious and dangerous activities including, you know, selling date time and, 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 uh, date time and um, location of pending search warrants, names and identities of undercover agents, names and identities of confidential sources. The, truly a very significant betrayal of um, the, uh, the trust that the FBI had put into them. And uh, when the FBI came to me with that case, frankly, we couldn't believe it. We were shocked. I was shocked. I didn't want to
1: believe it. Now, this was um, done under a uh, under a public corruption uh, category? Is that no, kind of how they did it? No. Or was it more that, aggressive? No.
0: No. It was uh, it was done as a drug trafficking case. And thankfully, okay. it was because uh, yep. we didn't have to worry about management from the mothership. We just dealt with exactly. it a drug trafficking case. Um, and um, and so, you know, I, I ended up charging once uh, we were able to get enough evidence, um, ended up in Charging the uh, the officers as long as well as uh, to use a business analogy, the uh, Four Corners region uh, supervisor of the Juarez cartel, um, mm-hmm. basically with uh, with just drug drug trafficking conspiracy, and um, but that case was important to me because during the course of that investigation, we picked up wiretap wire communication that the organization was very angry at a local sheriff's deputy who was essentially angering the organization for interfering with their drug trafficking success. Right, you know, Picking off uh, couriers, picking off low level people.
1: Just uh, doing just his job.
0: Yeah, just doing his job. And uh, so, but the comp- the communications that we were intercepting progressively became more and more, I'll say unsettling and mm-hmm. um, without getting into great detail the the uh conversations that uh um they that the fbi on the wiretap uh and myself deemed most problematic were the ones that communicated either a threat an intent to do harm or an intent to kill right and uh we ended up bringing that wire down the wiretap down a little bit premature solely because, uh, we had to address that, that human caretaking issue.
1: Right. Um, and that
0: really we, meant a lot to me because who knows what would have happened had we not sure. been on that wire.
1: Well, and maybe you can kind of explain to people too, because I don't think, so first of all, maybe you could talk a little bit about the burden that people have to have to bring up a, a title free, which is not an easy burden to meet necessarily. But if you do it a lot, I know there's specialists in it that, that crush it. And then the second thing is, is that uh, once it's up, uh, especially the FBI, we can agree, doesn't really like to take them down, even though they're expensive to maintain. They love it because the FBI loves intel. So maybe you can kind of flesh out what that what that look like for bringing it up. Number one, uh, two, mean, people have a, a sense.
0: Sure. I mean, I've had, uh, you know, not even necessarily this case, but uh, a variety of cases with other agencies and um, FBI, DEA, you name it. Um, these wiretaps are very expensive. I don't know the exact number, but let's just say they are a hundred thousand dollars a month to run. Mm-hmm. They're critically important tools in law enforcement. They're exceptionally difficult to get approved. Uh, people think that we just snap our fingers and we jump on people's phones. We don't, it's no. very, very difficult. It's a hard process. The AUSA works very closely, or at least I did. I made sure that, um, I made sure that my wiretaps and I embrace them as my wiretaps because it's my application to the court and the agent's affidavit is simply an exhibit. It's exhibit number, it's exhibit a, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so, um, I present my application to the court swear it out. And when I do so, I do so not only proving uh, probable cause exists with respect to the the need to uh, utilize this tool, but also that all other reasonable law enforcement strategies and and um, other law enforcement tools that we have at our disposal are simply insufficient to accomplish the goals of the wiretap, which is always, or at least almost always, to work our way up to the highest level of any particular organization that we're targeting, right? Right. And very typically, it's true you can't reach those levels without picking apart the lower level echelon uh, as you work your way up yeah maybe you um, could tell people
1: too what the uh, what the lesser versions of things so we have to obviously use uh, by less invasive means than tapping the phone so you know give some examples of what 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 you would like to see when you want to see that approved and you're going to go in front of a judge.
0: Uh, there are countless examples I mean the most obvious is you could do very overt things like uh, search warrants. Um, But the problem with doing a search warrant before you get a wiretap is you alert the organization that you're targeting them. So you want to scratch out the search warrants, but it is a tool that you can use. But it's a tool in the application that you say, um, if we did a search warrant, we would alert the organization that we're targeting them. And we don't want to alert the organization that we're targeting them because it's too critical that we keep this secret. And it's very legitimate. It's an extremely appropriate uh, stance to take in federal law enforcement. Uh, Many other tools to get up on the wiretap, obviously we want to see communications, Uh, a a real life example is we should not be seeing a phone that we know to belong to a cartel member linked with a region Two task force member immediately Hmm. after every single task force meeting, even if it goes through an intermediary, there's this constant flow of communication. We shouldn't see that because it's obviously not a human source. The cartel right. member is a known target. And if he was a source, you, we would certainly know that.
1: And you're seeing those phones by doing other less invasive means than a wiretax. Yeah, so subpoena to the,
0: and... a subpoena to the, to the service provider, a uh, pen trap and trace, which is just a, a an order issued by a magistrate judge, just to see the numbers, things like that. Yep. Uh, it's another common example um you can jump into the bank accounts to see if there's uh structuring activity so a lot of times drug traffickers they'll have a lot of bulk cash they will want to cleanse that cash so that they can go buy a truck or something mm-hmm. and you'll see organizations like the organization the bloods that we had they would send uh lower level people in their organization out in in i'm in the hundreds to go to post offices all around the country so i mean we had them hitting post office post offices to get postal money orders with you know three thousand dollars at a time yeah. um and they would just come back to la with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of postal money orders it's another thing that we would look for is the flow of cash and then you yeah. just put all that together and there are many many other tools but you put all that together and you present it to the court and, Either the judge agrees or doesn't agree that you need this very invasive tool, candid, very invasive tool uh, to target this organization for a higher purpose, which is always to work your way up to the very top of the organization.
1: And then guys like Phil and I get the, (laughs) that's right. We get, we get pulled in on midnight shifts to listen because we got to clean all the information as well
0: that's right. And uh, we bring in interpreters in the whole nine yards. So, yep. and then I get the 3 a.m. calls. Hey, we just intercepted a call. And uh, they say they're heading over to, uh, they're going to go uh, murder somebody. Um, but uh, of course, uh, we don't want to burn the wire. Um, it's a very common conversation. So how do you not burn the wire? So you work through that problem and uh, yeah. Very typically, uh, you can involve either members of the task force who are also uh, have access to uh, patrol vehicles, and you can do a you know a lawful stop or a random stop um, to uh, prevent the possibility of violence, sure. or you burn the wire
1: to save prevent the life. The
0: possibility of, of violence. So, right. Those are the the two typical I- problems. That you have to face in the middle of the night, like you said, pulling the midnight shift.
1: Yeah, and and, and uh, as you mentioned to me when we were talking earlier, it's it's one of those things where the FBI wants to keep that wire up because it took a lot of work to get it there, and they don't want to burn it. And they, you know, and I'm sure every other law enforcement agency is the same. The amount of effort and the and the um, infrastructure that takes place to be able to get those things going, and even just building out the shifts and pulling people from other work, it's like there's a lot of things in place, and there's a lot of information that can come in. So if you can cover it. The fun thing is is that when you do have task force officers like that in and uh peace officers in the state, you know, a probable cause stop. Almost everybody's driving around with something that they could they can hit you for some PC and, and pull you over if you're smart. Motor um which right, is,
0: motor vehicle code violation, not hard.
1: Yep. Sasha, I leave. don't
0: take my jacket away. What are you doing? <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. So you were telling me uh and the case that we were that we saw that that you sent me in the article was what it was what two thousand seven two thousand eight something like that. Am I, I think it was two thousand seven. Right?
0: Yeah, two thousand seven. Okay,
1: all right. So the specifics were: we've got this uh, this cop on the task force, two of them sounds like that were on the take that are getting money from the Juarez cartel, and they are handing out information left and right. And then you guys got a the the kind of the tip for violence. I remember you telling me how specific it got, and I think that'd be yeah. really interesting to folks to hear.
0: Right. Well, I'm not going to get as specific uh, on a no, podcast, uh, um, but. What I am going to say is that um, I was concerned, and many others were concerned, that when you start hearing that kind of language right. of uh, potential violence, it's time to address the issue in the kind of way that might mean losing hundreds, hundred thousand dollars on a wiretap um
1: what was protect- what was your pushback from from uh from our end of things from the from the federal side um, if you no got real some
0: pushback just a, no real pushback just a lot of communication just hard communication like this is like you said earlier very difficult to do and uh sasha you're crazy very difficult to do very expensive and uh ken is there any way we can keep the wire up without having to worry about um losing this opportunity to continue working our way up in the organization and it was right. clear that, uh, at that point we had to take action. And so we did Damn.
1: Yep. And the life was spared and, and, uh, appropriate uh, intervention was done, which folks, I don't remember I mean, how the, much the was actually in the article you, and how much came from you.
0: You don't know, um, whether or not someone's going to take action, but right. that's also the problem. That is yep. the problem.
1: Well, and if you so, don't, I, if you don't do something, you're gambling with somebody else's life.
0: 100%. What's,
1: what's, a, and you yeah, do, what's a bigger state you don't than do that?
0: that? You don't keep nope. a wiretap. And I think anyone, once you work your way through the formula of that problem, nobody would disagree that $100,000 a month is uh, worth. Um, no, I should have put you in the crate, girl. Down. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> I think it's good because um, I
1: could have a toddler come in at any moment is my thought. Like there could be a small person that comes in and tries to throw something at me or you know, wants to explain to me how we need to go to the park first thing in the morning, even though it's it's still dark out right now. Uh, so oh yeah, the dog is no big deal. So, so you know, you you saw successful prosecutions. Uh, did you do national security work too? That was my under. Did we talk about that a little bit? Did. It-
0: I did do a little bit of it. I was one of the attorneys pulled to D.C. to handle some of the Gitmo cases. But I guess, of course, we can't talk about those cases.
1: No, but we could talk about kind of the differential and the attitude that you see in, you know, from your end, looking at prosecutions and specifically even just the type of investigators that that go that route. Because I think a lot of people are concerned. One of the things that I've noticed is the FBI is far more intelligence focused now than they were when you started, you know, working with them as partners.
0: No, No doubt about it. There's been many, many discussions that I've had. Uh, I mean, let me just say this. Uh, I I, um, I hope, I think, and I hope that uh, the agents I work with know that I gave them everything I had, especially in the prime of my career. I had multiple surgeries that are really not relevant to this towards the end of my career. That became, you know, when a judge is looking down from on high and saying, Mr. Swain, do you need a break in the middle of a jury trial? That's a problem.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, um, you know, but I, I think I had a very good relationship. My my agents uh, trusted me to put in the work and I did put in the work. Uh, and so, you know, what I but one of the things I did see um, along the way was the bureaucracy on the agency side that I didn't appreciate, to to put it bluntly. Yep. I'm not okay with an FBI lawyer telling me that I need to change something in an affidavit um, that I'm not willing to change, and I won't.
1: And that you, and that you're putting know your how name it to is
0: now, that I'm putting my name to, and, right. and so uh, I think AUSA is in the field who have to actually swear these things out. They better be willing to push back because the court down the road, whether it be the court of appeals or even at the district court level, we'll never know who that lawyer was. And so I've been, you know, that is something inside the FBI that I didn't appreciate. Uh, I heard uh, some things um, that uh, were kind of funny uh, that surprises me now about how aggressive the FBI is. And like I said, I'm on here to talk about, Law enforcement, the needs for law enforcement now with our crime crisis and that kind of yep. thing. But when um, I've heard FBI agents in the past say things like the first rule of the FBI is to protect the FBI, that's correct. And then I and then I see the absolutely unambiguous reality that we have now it makes me very sad, having worked with what I believe to be the greatest federal law enforcement entity in the on the planet. Um, you know, FBI, DEA, those agencies were superior agencies that were built with high quality people. Mm -hmm. That is 99% of my experience. Um, But the FBI cannot say now that it does not have a problem with perception that it is not behaving in a way that is consistent with what i called earlier it's caretaking responsibility to to the community when you have a director who's incapable of explaining why it is that he allowed cities to burn and i'm just talking to you as a grunt federal prosecutor uh in truly incapable of explaining why agents weren't put out there um, on the front lines where they belong uh, i'm just the soft lawyer in the background you guys have both the fun work and the dangerous work mm-hmm. but you, you 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 swore an oath to put yourselves in harm and to uh be incapable of explaining why it is that one set of protesters and you know don't get me wrong january 6 protesters they're terrible they should go to jail if the evidence shows that uh, they violated the law throw the book at them i don't care sure As long as it's evenly applied, you can't have that that kind of aggression and do nothing about billions and billions of dollars of destruction in our cities. You can't have federal law enforcement agencies, U.S. Marshals in Portland risking their lives night after night after night and then not have uh, not require that when they get sued. That uh, the U.S. attorney's office in Portland doesn't even represent the agents who are expected to put their lives on the line to protect the building where the where the judges are supposed to be safe.
1: They didn't they didn't scope them on those things, which is a it's a big deal.
0: That stuff from a purely grunt perspective for me or from me really bothers me it makes me think well i I mean i put myself out on the line many times in my career i wanted to make sure my community's safe i worked with very very aggressive agents and i loved working with aggressive agents Mm -hmm. um and uh you know we i think made a difference in this community by virtue of the fact that we were willing to um play Smash Mouth with the kind of organizations that have no problems playing Smash Mouth with us
1: right? and and with the
0: community.
1: Yeah. Do you think the guys that you worked with, guys and gals that were in the, uh, you know, kind of doing the the front end work of violent crime, were they empowered by from what you saw you know from the field office level were they empowered to go out there and do enforcement actions if if they were witnessing an actual you know an ongoing crime or if it was a violent threat that happened because because my sense is and this is just you know i haven't i haven't put it to the test but i was in portland uh for two weeks while they were burning the city down it was towards the tail end of the hundred days it was octoberish or maybe or something like that and uh maybe the end of september and october in 2020 and so it's like you know, I know that if I saw something happening and I tried to intervene, there is almost no chance that the the Bureau would have backed my play. I would have been right. I would have been doing the thing that was right. I would have been doing the thing that you would expect a federal agent to step up and do, witnessing actual violence. Even if it was like someone attacking a cop from behind, hit him in the head with a brick. You know, it's my job to get out there and do something. Do you think that they would have been supported during your, your time?
0: Yeah, I think so. I do. I think so. Uh, for most of my time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, maybe maybe a little less so towards the end of my time. But um, what I will tell you from a citizen's perspective, that if an agent sees an Antifa member smacking a cop on the back of the head with a baseball bat, and that agent doesn't intervene to help, Mm -hmm. then that agent doesn't deserve to be an agent. I agree. With all due respect.
1: I, I mean, um, I agree. And and that's the sad thing is because they may, they may be throwing their career to the, to the wind, but I think that if you can't, you know, what do you, somebody told me this because we were talking about uh, Uvalde and I, and that was one of those things that really troubled me. And I can't remember if you and I talked about it too, but it's like, what are you saving it for to die in a hospital bed? Go do your job. If your job 100%. goes away and leaves you behind, so be it. And, yeah. and I think that comes from that enlisted yeah. perspective that you have about yeah. the. you know, some, some of us just, that's the, that's the work. Um, My buddy, Steve friend has said the same thing. It's kind of like, you know this is the job if the job leaves you so be it i actually wrote something very similar to uh to my asac and i think i wrote it to the deputy assistant director of human resources but it was something to the effect of it's like you know if this is not my time to serve or my way to serve then so be it um i will i'm still with you i'm going
0: to touch my fire here for
1: a second i see that yeah that's fine and it's one of those things it's like if you if you don't have the ability to lose the job and i think that should be a prequel for every fbi director if you're not willing to lose your job over the right reasons then you shouldn't be taking a well, job at all. And, and that's kind of what I see right now. Is,
0: yeah, but my, what bothers me is there shouldn't even be a discussion of any possibility of losing your job when all you're doing is protecting the public against violence. Yep. So, I mean, Antifa, to say Antifa is, is a thought, not an organization, is a joke.
1: I've had that Antifa said to me, though. Should
0: be, Antifa should be completely dismantled. It should be eviscerated from any discussion in law enforcement and it should have happened yeah. a long time ago well and there's um, no question that
1: they're organized because we saw it oh you know, we saw yeah, it. we, I mean, we, we were tracking the organization in portland
0: <laughs> like we tried behavior it. their behavior is is uh that of an organized criminal enterprise
1: correct no, no about question it. about it yeah no i agree with you 100 and i saw it it's like you know they had <laughs> anybody that has resupply drops and logistical concerns and fundraising wings and and comms and uh, spotters and assessors that are trying to make sure they have counter uh, surveillance and whatnot, because I got picked up on that. Some of my buddies got chased off by, you know, people on bicycles and a, a security team. You know, that was all stuff that happened. It, they weren't scary, uh, in fact, but we weren't empowered to do anything about it because we were in a watch only scenario. And so there's something really sad about being told Antifa is an idea and we really love political activists. You know, you're in Portland. That's just not what you want to hear when you're an FBI agent. Your fire looks good now, though. <laughs> well, done. thank
0: you. Um well, I'll tell you this much, with all all due uh, humility, I can guarantee you this: that uh, if me and a few of the, the agents I work with um, throughout my career decided to uh, go after Antifa uh, in the same way that I went after truck drivers who were transporting bulk cash and and you know thousands of pounds of of weed and cocaine and uh the same way i went after uh um, corrupt law enforcement or or uh, any criminal organization i guarantee you without any hesitation um in uh in my voice i hope that uh there is no way i wouldn't be able to prove a cr- ongoing criminal organization
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, just as a surveillance okay. guy watching out there, you could see it. It's there. Whether it be using columns together, whether it be, you know, sending people to go in, and spot and then sending another team on. I mean, we had their we had their radio transmissions. They, they use FRS radio so we could hear them and we recorded it. So all that evidence was available to us and it just didn't go anywhere. We haven't seen any prosecution. So it's pretty shocking to me. Um, okay. it, well, you're going to get but,
0: it's going to get dark here for a second, but I'm going to put my dog in the crate because uh, fair enough. It's just a little too crazy right now.
1: I hear you. I hear it. Um, I'm curious. Did you ever see like a time, or a, it, was there um, like a a threshold where we crossed over and you started seeing the hiring change? I think one of the things that people have said is that the 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 aggression, the ability to do so, it happened in the FBI. I don't know what the turning point was, but I know what happened. And did you, see, you know, I wasn't there, so maybe you saw it in DOJ when people were bringing these line prosecutors on that didn't have the same maybe tenacity that you would have to, to run stuff down and and maybe the spine to push back when it needed to be. Yeah,
0: I I can't really say that that was a big part of my career, even towards the tail end. uh, I was generally impressed with most of the prosecutors. But what I have heard now um, is that we're getting, you know, when I started out, a typical hire was uh, somebody who had a number of years like I did, trying case after case after case. I mean, I don't I don't think um, that. A lawyer who got, you know, a, a trial lawyer mm-hmm. who got smacked around a little bit in court and lost a handful of cases is a bad thing, right?
1: Sure. I think it's a. They good definitely thing. avoid it now, right?
0: And uh, what I've seen now is, and what I hear in the last few years, especially now, is there's this avoidance of uh, of risk. And that's, that's wrong. You can't have that. Sure. You have to have young lawyers, or if they're not whatever, not young, but inexperienced trial attorneys, um, willing to take cases with, for example, um, purely circumstantial evidence. Okay. okay? Um, that's a challenge, what I'm hearing, right? What I'm hearing from, circumstantial evidence is really just evidence. It's no different than any other form of evidence. It's just evidence. Uh, you got direct evidence, you got circumstantial evidence. Um, and there's no such thing as a case that's purely direct evidence. Um, and besides a case with that purely direct evidence, like a witness that says, I saw that man put that gun in that person's face. Okay. Yep. Uh, or a video of that person pointing the gun at that person's face. Uh, versus, um, a video with a a shadow of somebody putting a gun in the face and then somebody getting caught a block away um, and the gun being caught and the partial print or whatever, use your imagination. Yeah, same same clothing, whatever it may be. Same description. You put that in front of the jury and they do their job. Yep. It's true now that the department has become so afraid of losing cases or taking cases with um, a concern that uh, cases built on circumstantial evidence are not enough for federal court, then they're really doing a disservice to the community because most cases are, in fact, circumstantial cases.
1: Sure. I, it seems like a lot of folks, and, and I don't have a lot of experience with people uh, declining cases that I thought were a slam dunk or anything, but it, it does seem like there's a, uh, a concern about your record and where you're gonna go afterwards. And if you're gonna spend a couple of years as an AUSA, and then you wanna parlay that into a lucrative defense career or whatever it may be. I mean, plenty of people come in with ambitions and I don't begrudge them, but it seems like they really gotta get after it if they're gonna learn the, the trade. Uh, I tend to agree with you. That's kind of interesting. So, um, I mean, it, so- you know,
0: One of the other things that I'm seeing now is uh, that I hear a lot from my, uh, my fellow law enforcement professionals is that um, they just feel like they're being used as political tools.
1: Mhm. Right. Um, well, I had one
0: officer. Yeah, I had one officer tell me that uh, basically cops and agents are. and I quoted him, are just used as pinballs in a cruel game where public safety is lost. Sure. But that's true. And We're seeing the consequences.
1: Yeah, we see the consequences right now. Right.
0: That's true. Then public safety is indeed lost. For
1: sure. So, so what do what what do you think? Is there a path to make this clean? Is there a path to to fix this up and straighten it? And if so, you know what the heck is it? What does it look like? I don't know.
0: I mean i I've got uh, I'm down on the border, so obviously I'm deeply concerned about border issues. And one of the things that I don't see getting cleaned up is uh, our caretaking responsibility. To I guess uh, overuse that phrase, but I truly believe in it. Is our responsibility to children on the border? And I've I've um, then uh, very concerned about how for example when uh, in the last administration there was if a child came across the border whether alone or with somebody um, there was an immediate um, uh, i think attempt to provide that child with the kind of caretaking that every child deserves regardless of where they're from Mm-hmm. Um, if it came across if a kid came across uh, with somebody who claimed that that child was there, one of the best ways to address that is, uh, let's say, the immediate DNA test, like a, a, a mobile DNA test, and so you can see for sure that's his uncle, that's his father, and it's not not some uh, cartel trafficker or something like that. Right. Um, I think where we're real lost right now with respect to children is H A. What is it? Um, HHS, um, I don't even think that they know who these kids are. I don't think they're getting pictures of them. They're not getting identifications uh, for these kids. And um, from what I understand, they're being sent off, they're being just sent off to sponsors. Right. And so you don't even know who their sponsors are.
1: Do you think that's a lack of interest or do you think that's a lack of just being swamped and just being overwhelmed by lack of resources?
0: Well, it's a both. At first it was a lack of interest. In, what's, once again, it's a law that's simply not forced. We actually right. have immigration laws in this country. They're just it not turns good. out
1: we do. Yeah. I've worked with some of those folks <laughs> I, I mean, but, I, and they just leave um,
0: them. Yeah. So, I mean, for example, this is uh, one concern that's uh, really, really caught my attention recently. You and I were talking to people that we used to work with and, and, um, you know this issue is very very concerning to me as children so hsi i mean hhs is not um you know they're not caretakers for children they, they do what they can until the kids are placed generally with sponsors right sure and um and so what you have is well what's a case what's an HHS, what is an hhs case is it, is it an immigration case is there then an emergency removal or is mm-hmm. it a child caretaking case where our child welfare case where they're not welfare officers
1: right so they rely no on they're sponsors. not and, well, and then so it becomes rely a, like on a,
0: sponsors
1: and the state has to get involved as well because now you've overwhelmed certain state resources i'm sure and um mm-hmm. it's you got you got any other uh, and and i think that's very Yeah, I don't know if there's a solution to that in any of the short term, especially with the policies that we're seeing down there. You, you got any other special concerns that your your buddies? I know you. You said you had a whiskey drinking group of uh, former agents, and what's what's their biggest concerns that they're they're flowing to you?
0: It's just the lack of enforcement. It's the lack (laughs) of prosecution. So, here's here's I I think the biggest issue to crystallize it for the public, if there's any public watching. It used (laughs) to be that it used to be that there was that. 10%, 10%, you know, the repeat violent offenders, the recidivists, they are um, responsible. 10% is responsible for 90% of the crime, whatever it is, sure. right? Yep. Yeah, 80,
1: 20, the problem,
0: the problem when you stop enforcing the law like we used to just a few years ago when crime was still illegal was is that that small group creating that chaos Is going to grow. And it's not going to be 10% causing 90%. It's going to become 20%, 30%, because that percent of criminal minded offenders, not necessarily violent offenders, but crime minded offenders, see that even if you are a violent offender, nothing's going to happen to you over and over and over again. So why not participate in crime where it actually does pay? It does. So that's the problem. When when that small percentage responsible for the greater percentage of crime grows, law enforcement will have no ability whatsoever to address that. It's just sure. going to be too much.
1: It'll and, be, and there's not going to be enough cops at all because that 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 group is not growing. No, because but the I, funding is not yeah, there and I, all that.
0: Yeah, they're all resigning. The morale on the border is is un bearably low everybody yep. wants to leave they feel left out of the equation they don't feel like they're participating in anything other than you know babysitting or or just yep. stamping uh, somebody's arrival and pushing them off into the interior of the united states which is so my last yeah my last two neighbors
1: were they were border patrol guys um one of them was a former bortac commander total stud total you know american hero and his brother was a senior supervisor border patrol lived right across the street from me awesome human being just a great guy good to talk to you. every time he came out he had something interesting to say and we we just had like a lot of like really good neighbor time and um they're both you know they're brothers they both have about the same amount of time in 16 years they're they're kind of at the the peak of seniority for functionality and doing things they both got injured on the job one of them got injured you know doing a search of a subject's vehicle and twisting an ankle or something it happens and the other uh the the younger of the two brothers i believe was injured by pulling he, he threw his shoulder out pulling someone from a burning car which about as it's about as aggressive as it gets when it comes to doing like that sort of straight up humanitarian work and the agency is throwing them out border patrol is getting rid of them and told them basically you've got a few seconds to get back on the job and get clear or it's over for you because um we're not gonna leave you on, you know, light duty for much longer, even though they've you know they're they're in supervisory realms where they could be light duty and it wouldn't be a big deal. And they just feel totally unappreciated. And as an American, like who you know, I love Border Patrol, I think those guys are awesome. I yes, they were some of my favorite absolutely. people to work with. They're just they get paid the least, they work the hardest, they have a cool job. There's
0: there's nobody in federal law enforcement to keep going back to that issue that cares more about children than border patrol agents. Right. I mean That's they right. risk their lives for them. And when they see children coming across with sponsors that may or may not be their family members, I mean, think about this. If you don't know who that child is now, you're not going to know who that child is 20 years from now. You're right. not going to know who that child is five years from now. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if you don't keep track, which they are not doing, right? I yep. dare anyone at HHS to say that they're keeping track of these kids. They're not. Yep. So if you don't keep track of these kids, um, if they're pre-teens or teens and they're male, they're coming in and they're being forced to work and earn their heat and not going to school. If yep. they're girls, imagine the the terror that they're facing,
1: you know, 13, 14 Yeah, it's the worst girls, scenario. In a, and, and we both dealt to, with, I'm sure, trafficked and, yeah. Yeah, yeah forced just, to have it, children. It just, and Yeah, appalling. Uh, and I, I mean, I saw it all the way up. It,
0: by yep. not prosecuting that, we're allowing it.
1: Correct. I always tell people it doesn't matter if you're on the left or if you're on the right. Illegal immigration creates a captive captive victim population. They don't have access to federal law enforcement in a real way. They don't have access to local. They don't, may, may not have language skills. They sure as hell don't know the culture and the customs that are going on around them. And so sometimes they come right out of a hellhole, whether it's El Salvador or something, some really awful situation that we can really empathize with. And they end up right in the same damn thing. Whether it's in Costa de Maryland or they're in you know DC somewhere and they're just thrown into a flop house and and they're they're just they're screwed. They have no, they have no potential to gain the life that they basically gambled on on getting because it's not there. It's not available for them. It's available for oh, us. Of course, it's not. But but it's, not for it's them. It's
0: terrible. I mean, yeah. there are so many stories. I I I remember one story um recently of uh, a thirteen year old child having a baby, um and uh, the baby's father was her father but right. in fact it wasn't her father he was just uh, claimed to be her father he was the God. sponsor who really just a sponsor part of the trafficking or- organization right. so it's not incest it's uh but it's it's child sexual abuse sure and that was facilitated and allowed by not making sure not only we know who these kids are that we get prints we get dna so that if they pop up later on and they're allowed into the interior without you know going somewhere safe where we know where they are, at least when they pop up twenty years from now we know who they are
1: right yeah i I mean it's there's a lot we we got a couple couple seconds left I uh, just um any any closing hope that you have as far as this getting done what what do you what do you, you see anything that uh makes it get better yeah. or we just we're on a track for a while and see how we, we jump the ruts
0: yeah, well, I do think we are on a track for a while, sadly. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, I, I keep hearing things, uh, about federal law enforcement that used to only be heard or talked about in, in the context of local law enforcement, you know, I can't get my cases prosecuted, for example, is something I hear over and over again, fentanyl cases coming through, you know, the city not being prosecuted by the state or the federal government. That's a problem. That's a problem. You got, uh, somebody coming through on the train. And they got fentanyl and a gun they better be prosecuted okay Okay. because you don't just allow them to keep going to the next city um and i've heard uh, stories like that from from very frustrated uh, officers in uh, albuquerque and elsewhere um but i do have hope i think that people at some point are going to be sick and tired of having to worry about uh their car being taken from them they're uh, yep. having a gun stuck in their face and being told what's yours and that is now mine and and there being no consequences for that there has to be maybe we just haven't as a as a culture and a community suffered enough
1: maybe so now um, that's the uh that's that's the batman theory that's the uh the Giuliani in, in 94 i believe was his first election and it's like new york finally had enough after the 70s and 80s and the subways were all covered in in uh, spray paint and my, my wife grew up in that, you know, and she remembers when it, when the city turned around and New York city went through it and uh, they're going back to it. Unfortunately, it, it only lasted so long. It takes a lot of work to maintain yourself, to be a functional it's, society. It's sad. I hope we, it's are, sad I lasting. also hope that we put it in. I, yeah, I think ahead. we
0: will. I, I, I do believe in America. I believe in the country that you and I and so many others swore an oath to protect. Um, and I think deep down this division that we see is, manipulated and created in a way that really doesn't exist. I've got neighbors that have different political views and we love each other, you know? That's so as right. I, I, just this fellow Americans. And I, I'm hoping that that 80% in the middle begins to realize we have far more in common than the fringes on both sides of the political I
1: agree 100% no I agree I've always said that if we sat down and and look for it 80% of it we have common ground we all want our kids to do okay we may disagree on what they should be learning but we all agree they should be learning and we want them to be polite and we want them to say please and thank you and we want them to to be able to go trick-or-treating and all the little things that that you know I grew up with and I know you grew up with similar things and it's like the America that we signed up for um I think we all want the same thing for that so I'm I agree. There's, if we could find a look for the the similarities and not the differences, that'd be great. Um, I try to do it on my truth. Sometimes people want to jump the gun and attack each other about not knowing that you can shoot a coyote, but it's like, you know, Hey, we're all on the same team here. And it used to be that we're all on the same team, America, you're wearing the hat and you know, I've got it hanging up. And, um, there's one flapping right outside that little trailer that I'm sitting here. It's just that that's the team that I want to be on. I want to be on team America where we all look out and see who wants to screw with us. And then instead we've decided to do this like 50, 50, uh, tribal thing. So, um next time maybe we'll, we'll get a little chat further and uh we'll talk about some some long-range solutions or some wild ideas that we can throw out and maybe we'll get them into the, the discussion hopefully uh I'll get to go testify in front of Congress so we can clean up the FBI a little bit and I do appreciate you uh, spending your evening thanks for sharing your fire with me it feels warm even though I'm not near it
0: <laughs> Well happy to do so thank you so much for the invite
1: all right Reef. thanks so much um folks thanks for tuning in and uh if you want to subscribe or you want to send a question or a comment after the fact by all means send it and uh, I'll get Reeve to give me uh, an answer on it and I'll tweet it back out there to however many people are following. And uh, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Producer Phil, thank you, sir. Appreciate it, buddy. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter
0: and Truth at Kyle Seraphin.